welcome back to my love letter time machine. Hi, I'm Ingrid Birchall-Hughes and I'm serialising the love letters of my great-great-grandparents, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton. Travel 140 years back in time with me now, where we take a look at Victorian history through their eyes, and today Fred returns to Sheffield for a visit and seems to be being ghosted by his best friend, and Janie gets a bit of a fright when her cousin Maria suddenly falls ill. Hi, I'm sorry if it sounds a bit weird today. I'm recording this in bed because I'm not feeling that great, but I thought I'd give it a go. So please forgive me if it sounds a bit weird. Now, before I start, this time I have a book recommendation for you. I've just finished reading The Unrespectable Woman by Roger Griffin, which is a gripping novelised account of the story behind the last woman to be hung in Wales. It's set in Cardiff in the Edwardian era, and it starts ever so gently as Roger Griffin reveals each piece of the jigsaw puzzle in the chaotic life of a woman going by the name of Leslie James. It encompasses alcoholism, casual prostitution, and a terrible trade that was known at the time as baby farming. By the end of the book, you're dealing with the enormity of how Leslie, whose real name was Rhoda Willis, met her tragic end. When I think about how our Jane's sister, Emma, was protected by her family, I'm struck by the disastrous parallels here and how being a woman on the wrong side of the tracks could cost you a fair trial and ultimately your life. I honestly couldn't put it down and I was sobbing by the end of it. I really recommend it for its historical context as a story of true crime, as women's history and it was a really good read. So that's The Unrespectable Woman by Roger Griffin, and it's available on Amazon and other online bookstores. Back to Fred and Janie. And this week, we start with a little flurry of back and forth in their run-up to what will be Fred's last visit back to Sheffield before their wedding. Hansworth, August the 3rd, 1882. My own darling husband, I have only just a few lines for you today, so please excuse me, love, as Polly has come and wants me to make Edith a dress, and I want to fit it on her twice before she goes away. I went there yesterday, but Edith was from home, so I could not get it done. From there, I went down to Mrs Fleer's to see her about my wedding dress, as it is not finished yet. I should have liked you to have been with us in the nurseries, darling. It was quite a treat. We will go to our church on Sunday morning and at a cliff in the evening if you like, love. I should like us to go, as it will be the last time we shall go as single young people. We shall be old married folks next time. We should enjoy ourselves even at Cleethorpe's, darling, if we were together or anywhere else. I know, love, you would be only too pleased to take me away before the feast if you could. Only another day to pass over, then I shall have you with me, my own husband. This week is a long one. I do want to see you, darling. Polly wishes to be very kindly remembered to you. We are having nice weather this week. It was a splendid night last night. I did wish for you to bring me home from Darnell. I always miss you, darling. You were generally somewhere near when I was down in that direction. 
If I have not time to give you a little more tomorrow, I shall be at the station to meet the usual train. I dare not write more, it is post time. I love you more than ever, and remain your loving, true and faithful wife, Janie. Royal Exchange, Middlesbrough, the North Eastern Steel Company Limited, August the 4th, 1882. My own darling wife, I received your short but welcome letter this morning, love, for which I thank you. I am sorry your dressmaking prevents you from giving me a longer one, but I suppose I must bear it. I have not time for much tonight, love. We are very busy. Only 24 hours, darling, and then we shall be together, and then I can take you home though, of course, you would no doubt prefer somebody else. I shall come by the usual train, love, if possible. I love you, my darling wife, more than ever, and remain your loving, true and faithful husband, Fred. Hansworth, August the 4th, 1882. My own darling husband, I shall be pleased to see you tomorrow. Not many hours to our meeting, love. I went down to Darnall with Polly last night and found Maria in a very poor state. Polly said how bad she was when she called. She has got in quite a low way and they are afraid of something very serious. I will tell you what it is tomorrow. The doctor says she is not to be left by herself at all. They had a dreadful night with her on Wednesday. Aunt Staniforth asked me to stay all night last night, so I did. She had a better night, and when I left this morning, she seemed nearly herself again, but very weak. I do feel sorry for her. You must please excuse more tonight, love. I will save everything to tell you tomorrow. I do wish you were here now. I remain, my darling, your loving, true and faithful wife, Janie. We have now one of those frustrating gaps, where no doubt after Fred arriving in Sheffield, he got all the updates on what exactly had happened to Maria. As for the details of their weekend together, all I can do is try and piece it together from their subsequent letters. The local papers offer up some tantalising information about their associates. You might remember Janie mentioning their mutual friend Emma Gill on occasions, the poor lass who apparently has tuberculosis or consumption, as it was known at the time. A few weeks ago, Janie wrote about going on a picnic with several people, including the entire Gill family. On Friday the 4th of August 1882, there was this report in the Sheffield Independent. Drunken driver, Henry Gill, a market gardener residing at Hansworth Woodhouse, was charged with having been drunk while in charge of a pony and trap on the High Street Attercliffe on Wednesday night. The defendant, who admitted the offence, was fined 20 shillings and costs. That's quite a hefty fine. That's more or less a week's wages for a manual labourer. On the Monday, Janie and Fred might have felt obliged to go and see the Darnell Wellingtons play a match on the Nether Green, where Ginny Reckless's fiancé, David Craven, contributed a single run to the winning total. It would be interesting to know how the Staniforths were coping with the idea of Ginny being engaged to a craven, 
given that a willy craven may well have been the reason for Maria's downturn. Back in May, Fred had written the following. I am sorry to hear that Maria has been unfortunate over Willie Craven, but I don't quite see why he came to see her after his marriage. Did she not know of it? I think he is very foolish in marrying his deceased wife's sister, because it is no marriage according to the law, and the children of any result will be illegitimate. The Cravens seem rather unfortunate in their marriages, I think. Was he really engaged to Maria, or was he only trifling with her? I never thought he would marry her, love, and I believe I said so to you some time ago. Now, Willie Craven had been married to a Clara Blanche, who had died suddenly the previous year, when she was only 25. The issue of a man marrying the sister of his dead wife had become something of a political campaign during the Victorian era, and I was surprised to see the number of reports on the subject, even in just the Sheffield press, from reporting the progress of the Act legitimising such marriages, which was currently going through the parliamentary procedure in Canada, to the lack of progress for a similar Act to go through the British Parliament, to a story from Sirencester, where a gentleman, after the death of his first wife, had married his sister-in-law, and was outraged when his local vicar refused to administer the sacrament to his wife. He appealed to the Bishop of Gloucester only for the bishop to approve of the vicar's behaviour. If this had been done to her after she'd knelt at the altar, it does, however, seem rather cruel and humiliating. So why was there such a big deal about this? And why was it an issue worth campaigning on at the time? a campaign the length of which was even sent up in a satirical song in Gilbert and Sullivan's 1882 operetta, Iolanthi. A contributing factor might have been the maternal death rate, which in the 1880s was still shockingly high. One in every 200 pregnancies ended with the death of the mother. For comparison, that number in the UK today is now only one maternal death in 10,000 pregnancies. It wasn't until antibiotics came in in the 1930s that things properly started to improve. Given this and the many other causes of premature death at the time, many men would have found themselves alone with several children to care for, but he would not have been expected to do it himself. If he could afford it, he would have sought the help of a housekeeper, and if he could not, he would be dependent on the support of his female relatives. Sisters-in-law stepped up to the plate all the time. Marriage, for many, was the next logical step, either out of practicality or out of the genuine feeling that had grown with close proximity. This kind of marriage was considered a bit iffy. It would seem, in part, due to a suspicion that it was adjacent to incest, Arguments were drawn from the book of Leviticus in the Bible that a husband and wife became one flesh and therefore your sister-in-law wasn't just your sister-in-law, she was actually your sister. However, it wasn't made explicitly illegal until 1835 when an act was passed in part to protect inheritance rights. And Fred is absolutely right, any children from such marriages would be considered illegitimate. The law didn't change until the Deceased Wife's Sisters Marriage Act 
passed in 1907. What of the deceased widow's brother's marriage act, I hear some of you ask? Well, that didn't change until after the First World War, and that was passed in 1921. Going back to Willie Craven, had Maria Staniforth played a role in comforting him after the death of his wife, and is that how she developed feelings for him? Did he, in his bereaved state, presume stronger feelings towards Maria and in a weak moment propose to her? What led him to break with Maria and decide to marry his sister-in-law instead? From the sounds of their future remarks, it appears he was a selfish man and was playing fast and loose with Maria's affections. The whole family appears to rally behind her, and Janie and Fred spent some time that weekend trying to cheer her up. Whatever the events, I'm sure the weekend went quickly and before long. It was Tuesday morning and Fred was on a train, wending his way back to Middlesbrough. The North Eastern Steel Company Limited, Royal Exchange, Middlesbrough, August the 8th, 1882. My own darling wife, I arrived here all safe a little before three o'clock this afternoon. I had a very pleasant journey, but should have enjoyed it more if you had been with me, love. But you will be next time. I had the usual look around York. I'm sure you will like it, love, when I can take you round. I wish the time would go, love, and that I was coming to fetch you next week for good. I hope you got home all safe. I shall not be able to give you much tonight, as it is now half past seven, and I am rather hungry. I remain, my darling wife, your loving true and faithful husband, Fred. P.S. If Fred Johnson writes to your house, you might open the letter and then forward it to me. Hansworth, August the 9th, 1882. My own darling husband, I received your letter this morning. I was very pleased you arrived all safe, love, and had a pleasant journey. I wish you could have taken me with you, but I shall go next time, and we shall enjoy the journey then. It is nine weeks tomorrow, not eight, as we thought, but it will not be very long now before I am your happy wife. I shall enjoy the look around York when you take me, darling. I got home all right, love, about eleven o'clock. I felt very tired in the afternoon. Mother said I looked as if I had been raking for a month. I thought it must be with dancing, as it could not be with anything else. We had so much company too yesterday, and I had to wait upon them. I almost felt too tired to put one foot before the other, but I feel all right today. I have just finished ironing. I promised Ginny Reckless... I would go up to the institution one night while Mrs. Gover is away, so I thought I would go tonight, as I am more at liberty than any other night this week, and change the wedding ring. I feel sure, love, it will be too small, and the sooner it is changed, the better. I'm going by twenty minutes to six train, and shall come back by the nine o'clock. I wish you could go with me, love. I do love you more than ever. I am looking forward to a happy future, when we will always be together. Our John has just gone out to undertake some parish business. 
I will give you a little more tomorrow. They want me to get the tea ready now, love. Fred Johnson has not written here yet. I remain, as always, your loving, true and faithful wife, Janie. Please, love, excuse the little smears. Albert Terrace, Linthorpe Road, Middlesbrough, August the 10th, 1882. My own darling wife, I received your letter this morning for which I thank you. I thought you would contrive to let me have a few lines if it were any possible. I thought it was only eight weeks love to the day and I'm almost sorry that it is nine, but it will give you a little more time love to prepare for it. I am sorry that you were so tired my darling. You seemed all right when we went from home. It must have been the dancing love that knocked you up. It could not have, of course, been anything else. Did your mother say anything about our being upstairs together on Monday, love? You will know by this, love, whether you have changed the ring and if you've got one to suit. I am sorry I could not be with you, as I rather like making purchases of that kind with you, wifey. I suppose Ginny would have to see it. What did she say? She would go into ecstasies, of course. I have not heard from Fred, love, about my letter. Do you think it would be advisable to ask John Mies at once, and so be sure of him? I am rather disappointed that Fred has not thought it worthwhile to write in reply, even if he had refused the offer. I suppose he will be busy spooning Miss Barton, and so will not have time, wifey. Did your Emma get home all right on Monday night, love? Of course, I will excuse the smears, darling. I would excuse anything rather than not have a letter from you. I should have written for tonight's post, but it was after eight when I had done. It is our payday. We have been busy sending out the cheques to the contractors. You must excuse me this once, darling. I intended going down to Mrs Gordon's tonight, but have not had time to see if she has heard of a house near there. I think I understood from you that either Church Street, Milton Street, or St Paul's Road would do, love. I hope we may succeed in getting one in one of those streets, as I should not like you to be disappointed. I hear that Mrs Gordon has let her back rooms this week. I hope, with all due regard to her income, that she will not let the others, as we could take them for a week or two. I think you would perhaps be better able to settle down there, and having to go to a strange place. I think today has been the most beautiful day we have had here, and also the hottest. There was scarcely a breath of air, and the sky was perfectly blue. I did wish that you were here, love, and that we could have gone down to Saltburn for the afternoon. It would have been very enjoyable, wouldn't it, my darling? I don't feel the separation so much this time, darling, for I think it won't be long before you are my wife, and then there will be no separations for us. I enclose you a cutting from the paper on matrimonial superstitions. It may interest you, love, if you have not seen it before. I hope you are not superstitious as to day or time, love, as I cannot see how they can affect anyone's happiness. I will now close for tonight, love. I'll give you a little more tomorrow on receiving yours. I love you, my darling wife, more than ever. Good night, wifey. Continued, August the 11th, 82. My darling, I was rather disappointed at not receiving a letter from you this morning, 
especially as you had almost promised me one. It is awfully hot again today. I have been longing for the claret and ginger beer I used to have at your house last summer. I think I should enjoy a taste of it, but must do without it. I think I am going up to Yarm tomorrow afternoon. We shall take a boat at Stockton and then row upstream with the tide to Yarm and then come back with it. I have heard that is very enjoyable. I shall perhaps take you up if it is nice and you are good when you are my little wife. I wish I was coming home again to see you, love, as I did last Saturday. It does seem a long time from Tuesday morning. I remain, my darling Janie, your loving, true and faithful husband, Fred. P.S. I shall, as usual, expect one for Sunday, love. I can't find the exact copy of the article on matrimonial superstitions that Fred sent to Janie, but I found what I assume may well been a version of a piece that was in multiple newspapers across England and Ireland. The article first appeared in 1871 and was still doing the rounds 65 years later when I found it being reprinted with almost the exact same copy in 1936. It looks to be one of those handy filler articles that gets dusted off periodically during the wedding season. The lists of traditions in the latter half of the article is tedious and long and was probably useful to be cut to size to fill the available space. Can you tell I used to work as a layout editor on a newspaper by any chance? Anyway, here are some of the edited highlights. It begins. Matrimonial superstitions. In olden days, June was held the most propitious month in the twelve for marriage. A happy result being rendered doubly certain if the ceremony was timed so as to take place at the full moon or when the sun and moon were in conjunction. It was considered improper to marry upon Innocence Day because it commemorated the slaughter of the children by Herod and was equally wrong to wed upon St. Joseph's Day. In fact, the whole season of Lent was declared unfettered from the intrusion of Hymen's devotees. Marry in Lent and you'll repent, and there are good people who, if they do not believe that bit of proverbial wisdom to be prophetic, undoubtedly think Lenten wedders deserve to find it so. We may possibly be doing a service to some of our readers by informing them on the authority of a manuscript of the 15th century that there are 32 days in the year upon which it is unadvisable to go into join hand. And then the article proceeds to list every single one of the dates. It then continues with a rhyme about marrying on specific days of the week. Monday for wealth, Tuesday for health. Wednesday, the best day of all. Thursday for crosses. Friday for losses. Saturday, no luck at all. We then get a list of customs. It is a bad sign if the bride fails to shed tears on the happy day, or if she indulges herself by taking a last admiring glance at the looking glass after her toilet is completed. But she may gratify her vanity without danger, if she leaves one hand ungloved until beyond temptation. To meet a priest, dog, cat, 
lizard or serpent on the way to church, to look back or to mount too many steps before getting to the church door are alike ominous of future unhappiness. And, according to the North Country, it is courting misfortune to marry in green or while there is an open grave in the churchyard or to go in one door and out another. When bridesmaids undress the bride, they must throw away and lose all the pins. Woe to the bride if a single pin be left about her. Nothing will go right. Woe also to the bridesmaids if they keep one of them, for they will not be married before Whitsuntide or till the Easter following at soonest. Where the Scottish custom is followed of the newly wedded couple being welcomed home by the husband's mother, meeting them at the door and breaking a currant bun over the head of the bride before her foot crosses the threshold. It is thought a very bad omen if the bun be, by any mistake, broken over any head but to that which the honour is due. If the bridal party ventures off dry land, they must go upstream. Should they be foolhardy enough to go down water, either the bride, the bridegroom or one of the bridesmaids will infallibly feed the fishes. Spite of the faith there in being luck in odd numbers, it is a belief in the north of England that one of their wedding guests will die within a year unless the party counts even. And so on. And so on. And so the article goes on. I think I'd better stop there. I just thought it was an interesting look at how people saw the world then. The superstitions don't seem to bother our pair in the slightest. Next week, as well as the continuing best man wrangling saga, Fred starts seriously house hunting, and Janie continues to prepare by filling her bottom drawer. Thank you so much for listening to my love letter time machine. I'd very much like to share Fred and Janie's story with more people. So if you haven't already, can I ask you to share this podcast with someone you think might enjoy it? You can also find excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine or one word. And you can write to me at my love letter time machine at gmail.com. Until next time, take care.